0: Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome to Convert Central. I'm Kevin Sidik Lim, the host of Convert Central, and I'd like to welcome you to season three of Convert Central. Our podcast focuses on the challenges that Muslim converts face along their conversing journey to help Muslims from all backgrounds to find a strong foothold in Islam. Follow our Instagram and LinkedIn page at Convert Central, and I look forward to sharing with you all the beneficial series we plan for the year. For now, I'd like to welcome you to season three of Convert Central alaikum, dear listeners, welcome back to another podcast episode here with us on Convert Central. My name is Dini Hazika and together with me, I have Sis Hafiza and we are so honoured to be your host for today's episode. We pray that you have been doing well and that you are showered with ease in all your affairs, inshallah. Um, on today's episode, we are very excited to bring you another Convert Sharing and we have a very special guest with us here today and we're so genuinely intrigued by the work that he does, mashallah. So let's just uh, dive straight into it, right? Um, assalamualaikum.
1: Assalamualaikum, Pak
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to join us here today. Um, so before we start, can we just get you to introduce yourself, what you're doing now and when you converted to Islam?
1: Okay, right at the moment, I'm sitting here talking to you on the webcast, but um, in my real life, I'm an environmental consultant and I've been doing that for about six years. Before that, I was working in geographic information system software engineering. We uh, were writing um, technical scientific software for remote sensing.
0: Um, when did you convert to Islam?
1: Oh, a long time ago. Well, the story is like this. I, I was in Australia for many years because I'm an Australian and that's what we Australians do. And um, I had the opportunity to come up to Malaysia for a project in 1993 uh, with the survey department. They call it the Jabatan Ukur. Before that, I had no contact with Muslims, absolutely none, because where I come from in Australia, there's, there's, back in, 90s, in the early 90s, there were no Muslims there. Everybody was Christian or atheist. That's an important point, actually. I'll talk about that choice later. But um, when I came to Malaysia, I had no idea what to expect. I just sort of jumped on the plane, went to Malaysia, and, wow, culture shock. It was completely different from what I expected. And, of course, you know, um, I'm looking at the Malay people, and I was, I was quite impressed with their luck, they were just lovely people and and in the process of working on a project for about a year in malaysia i was invited to some of their houses and i'd see them preparing for prayers on fridays and you know it was all you know wow all this stuff going on and the other incredible thing was fasting month because i was i was there for fasting month and and you see them fasting and i think that's incredible how how can you do it like that of course they're all falling asleep in the afternoon but it's accepted you know so that was my first impression of Muslims. I, I was left with a pretty good impression. And then um, when I finished the project in Malaysia, I came down to Singapore. Of course, my, my friends sort of were Muslims were Malays. And then I met my wife, and then I got married. And when I got married, I, that was the point at which I converted to Islam. And that would have been about 20-something years ago. That's how I began to take an interest in Islam before that, because it was the whole, the whole business of travelling overseas was, was an education for me. But I do want to say, back when I was about eighteen or nineteen, and I left school, I went to a Christian college, um, Catholic. I was raised as a Catholic. My family, good Catholics. There were eleven children in the family, and I was the second eldest. So you can imagine, it was a pretty good Catholic family, and the expectations were there. The expectation that you inherit your religion, right? Even the Muslims inherit their religion, and um, and probably it's easy to take for granted. You just assume, okay, I'm a Catholic. But or you just, if you're born Muslim, you just assume you're a Muslim but are you really? For me, I, once I left school and, and I was sort of in a position where I could think myself a bit more, I was starting to question things like, well, is there really a Trinity? And then of course, I stopped going to church and stuff like that. And my friends would say to me, have you become an atheist? Because they didn't see me go to church. And then that forced me to think about, well, did God exist? I had to give them, an, I more or less had to give them an answer, right? So my starting point is that there is a God and that there's no such thing as the trinity, and that Jesus was somebody special, but he was not God. So that was my basic ethos at the time. Mashallah,
2: okay. Allah, bro, But, sadly I just want to jump in here and say that I think it's so amazing that you mentioned how your understanding of science actually helped you and like further reinforce the notion that God does exist. Because in today's world, we often see that people who believe in science are mutually exclusive from people who believe that there is a God. So, Alhamdulillah, like Allah gave you the guidance and removed that veil uh, from your eyes to see that science does not oppose religion. In fact, they go hand in hand. And usually, a lot of scientific discoveries that are made in recent years are actually already mentioned in the Quran 1400 years ago. So, mashallah, I'm so happy to hear that you are one of the people who can, you know, reconcile the science and the religion debate and actually, like, share with people that you know what? It ex- reinforces each other. It
1: doesn't oppose. Yeah, that's a very good point, and I'd like to speak on that point a little bit further. I did give a talk at Darul Akam. Uh, I think it was early this year or last year about this. It was talking. We were talking about evolution, and of course, you know, when you go from Christianity to Islam, then you have this issue of what what's the story of evolution and atheism and what we call neo atheism. Neo atheism is the Darwinian atheism, the atheism that rose as a result of um, Darwin's um, theory of evolution, but atheism did exist before that. To address the neo-atheism, what really happened was that you always had, the first point is that you always had atheists. When Darwin brought out his his theory of evolution, then a lot of the science, a lot of the atheists who happened to be in the science community took this up and championed the theory of evolution to say, there, see, we don't need God to create man we don't need all of this stuff and that was their basis and of course um there was there was other things like um the business of genesis and and the six days of creation and the resting of god on the last seven on the seventh day and things like that And, and 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 of course there's explanations for all of these things um the the thing is that the christians at the time um were not real bright and what they did was because the atheists were claiming the science was proving that God doesn't exist, they thought they had to attack the science. So the Christians attacked the science. And then the science defended, right? And that's why, to this day, that you have this business. It's not so much in Australia, but more in America, that the science tends to be um, promoting atheism. And if you look at the, the, um, some of the books that have been written by various atheists in support of atheism. Um, A lot of them are about um, evolution and even they are recommended reading at National University of Singapore Science. So there is actually a a dark side to, to the scientific community where they unknowingly promote atheism. Okay, They probably don't understand why they should or should not be promoting atheism, but it happens, it's, it's pervasive and it's, and it's all the time there. And I see a lot of young people who are also, you know. So there's one thing. And the other thing that I wanted to say is that if you wanted to look into the business of the six days of creation, what you'll find is that everybody's going off the English translation, which says six days. Even if you look into, into Yusuf's Quran um, translation to English, it says six days also, right? Surafusala. But in actual fact, if you go back into the, um, let's say the, the the original biblical Hebrew, um, you will find, and you can read up on this, that, that it wasn't six days; it was six eons. Okay, so the word that's being translated into days in English didn't specifically mean days; it could have meant eons. So, so the and, and there's a um, there's a book on this called the Seven the Seven Days of Creation, the Seven Days that ruined the world, or something like that. Uh, This guy is a Hebrew expert, he's a Christian at Cambridge, he's a maths teacher, he's probably retired by now, and uh, he, he explains all this in his book. So the six days of creation, no, it was six eons of creation, that's completely consistent with science. So there. (laughs) You want to
0: talk about <laughs> Thank you so much, Pak Saleh, for that sharing. Um, I think the science points are very, very interesting, but um, maybe we'll get into that a little bit more later. Uh, but I just wanted to ask, because you mentioned that uh, when you went to Malaysia and your first, first brush with like Muslims got you very attracted uh, to the ahlak that they had, right? So on that note, um, was their ahlak the most beautiful thing about Islam to you or was there something more about what they did or how they acted that um, made you attracted towards Islam?
1: I enjoyed interacting with them, and they impressed me with the things that they did. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to pray five times a day is a pretty serious undertaking uh, for, for somebody like me. Come from Christian land where we pray once a week, go to church, even if, and then we don't go to church. <laughs> so, no, the Friday prayers was an incredible thing. Everything in Kuala Lumpur, everything stopped on Friday for the Jumar prayers and people were just parking their cars, double parking, and it didn't matter because, you know, they were all in the same, uh, same mosque doing their prayers and coming out at the same time. It was all, everything Ma- worked. It was beautiful.
2: Mashallah, I-, I think it's very nice to hear from a convert because we one Muslims tend to take it for granted. Like, even though we see it like our brothers, our fathers going for Friday prayers, and then we see how we ourselves put everything on pause for our daily five prayers. We don't realize how miraculous or how beautiful that in itself is, how we get to disconnect by obligation. To be a good Muslim, you have to disconnect and that in itself will bring you peace. And it's all ordained by the one and only because he knows us best. He knows that we need this five times of disconnection from the world and then just focusing on him and what is our true purpose. So I think it's really nice to hear this refreshing, um, full of awe You know, for these uh, practices that uh in in which are compulsory in Islam, alhamdulillah. And I think like what Fat um, Saleh was saying, it might be a very simple thing that he got attracted to, like, you know, like the way that people talk and all that. But at the same time, what might be simple, might be really life-changing for Someone because of Allah's Hidayah. So, this really shows us that Allah can choose to open anyone's eyes at any moment. And we, as Muslims who are listening to this podcast, inshallah, we need to know that we should always be on our best behavior, inshallah, to be the beacons of Islam and to really, you know, you never know which person is watching you or which person is observing the way you speak. And then knowing that you are a Muslim, wow, is this how Muslims are? That means the religion they are following must be something even greater inshallah, that they will also think like that and that we will continue to be, you know, the great examples following our Prophet Sunnah. Salallahu
1: yeah. Well Just it's not easy, be- it's not easy, you know, to to maintain that level of akhlaq and adab because even though myself myself I find sometimes I slip back to my Australian ways while I'm driving my car, you know, sometimes I have to give the international signal of disrespect. But um you have to work on it. You have to work on your akhlaq and you have to work on your adab. And of course, over time, you know, having having studied a bit more, you know, um, with Al-Mahu Mustaz Su'Kifli, many years, what we find is that adab is the most, adab and aklaq are the most important basis because knowledge doesn't come to you unless there's adab first. And and those are the things, some of the important things that have been learned. And, and also, if you look into um, Professor Nakib al you know, he, he will say that the breakdown of adab um, results in confusion in the community. and you know the rise of false leaders and all those sort of things that we see happen excuse me happening today yeah so enough on that
0: right i think um yeah pak sally mentioned um it is very difficult to maintain like Behavior, I think, it, like you said, it really does take constant effort. Um, so sometimes, like we we have had our uh, sharings with converts who you know mentioned that it is a struggle uh, that they are still reconciling a lot of things as well. So I think your sharing, inshallah, will um, reassure them that um, you know there's never going to be like a point where oh i'm i i'm done i've i have done enough like i I'm getting, ready, right never never, ever, you'll never get this panel lawyer. so mm. I think um you mentioned this point in the previous podcast. if you ever feel like, oh, there's so much more that I need to do, you know I'm not doing enough it's a good thing. it's a good sign. It means that um yeah. your heart is in the right place inshallah and
1: and, and you realize it if you when you're not a born Muslim, you realize it is that. As born Muslims, you were raised in a Muslim family, and you know, in, in simple things like you salam your father, you solemn your mother when you go or come back, or your grandparents or your uncles, whatever, you're gonna be showing this respect as a younger person to to the elders. And that's just one small aspect of, of the development of Adab and Naklaq in the child. So as a as a as a born Muslim, as you grow in the Muslim household, you you are inculcated with the the you know, the ways of adab and the ways of akla. And, and, and it's certainly taken for granted, but that is certainly there. It's one of the forms of edu- education. But as a convert, you don't have this. You know, you grew up in Australia. When you get old enough, you drink beer and you smoke and all sorts of other things. And um, you don't have any concept of adab or akla. And even when you come to the point of your kalima shahada, you still have no clue. Because you haven't that that level of 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 education hasn't been there for you, and you can go and do course after course after course, but you you can't you can't replace that piece of growing up inculcation of adab and that that you get in the born Muslim family. So that's the big difference I see between a born Muslim and a convert is the convert has missed out on a lot of stuff, and um, we have to you know be wary of it. Okay, so that's all
0: I wanted to say there. Let's uh, go to the next question. <laughs> MashaAllah. Pastor so um, I'm so sorry. Like, uh, you know, we're supposed to move to the next question, but I think that's such an interesting uh, point of view because for me as a born Muslim, whenever I see converts and their strife, right, I always am in so much awe uh, precisely because um, they haven't had prior knowledge and they have to start from ground zero. Like as a, as a born Muslim, what I realized for myself is uh, because you are raised in the environment where you never had to kind of struggle for the Shahada right like i was already a muslim when i was born so there is definitely going to be points in your life where the uh, where complacency kind of sets in and so that's why whenever i look at converts right i get like i mean so much all because they had to start from scratch and they're willing to start from scratch and there's so much to learn like even as a born muslim even though you told us we have all that time right um really, we haven't even scratched the surface of all there is to learn about in Islam. So, um, the fact that there are these individuals who were granted hidayah from Allah and they are willing to start from scratch and they are willing to put in that effort, I think it's always so amazing, subhanAllah. so. I think converts convert absolutely amazing individuals and I honestly look up to them very, very much. Like I can look up to you as
1: well. Oh, don't look
0: up <laughs> <up to> <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, right. So moving on to the next question. I think you mentioned earlier that uh, you were raised in a Catholic family and you went to um a Christian school, right? So when you converted, mashallah, how did uh, they react to this conversion?
1: Well, we're not as now, so there's no big reaction. It- it's completely different. I mean, I understand what happens here, when particularly for the young ladies who convert, some of them get kicked out of their house. It's very sad. There's a very strong association of the of the family's uh, religion with the family's, you know, social situation, and there's a lot of ignorance out there um, where these young people will be accused of becoming Malay, <laughs> which effectively are, you know, because you know, what does Malay mean? Malay means you're a Muslim, you speak Malay, you follow the customs of the Muslims, right? So those three things make you a Malay. It makes me a Malay. So um, so that's the thing, is that um, for me, it's no big deal. Even though my brother, one year older than me, is a Catholic priest, it, it, there's no criticism coming from him. I mean, it's just, this is the way the Western culture is. We, we tend to be, um, people are more, you know, it's your business what you do and we're not going to um, criticise you for it. It's different to Asian culture. So, um, yeah, I don't, have, I don't have any bad experiences to report.
2: <laughs> alhamdulillah for that, but Saleh. I think that's a very big blessing that Allah has given. I mean, this is definitely not by coincidence. He definitely wanted you to have an easy, you know, easy journey to convert, inshallah. And then it, it, it happened such that, you know, now 20 years on, you are still a Muslim, alhamdulillah. 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 So I wanted to just ask, the means, is that true that when you called them or you video called, I don't know how you actually told them the news, like they were just like, oh, that's cool that you're a Muslim now. Was it like
1: that? I didn't say much. Um, I just, um, yeah, I'm a pretty private person when it comes to, I don't really communicate that much with my family. You know, for weddings and funerals, I might go back to Australia. Um, And I've done that even at my mother's funeral. And my wife came with me. I was wearing a and My wife was wearing a tudong in the Catholic Church, but it was no big deal. It's no, it's no problem. And um, Australia's like that because Australians are fairly laid back. You know, we we are pretty boch up kind of people, and um, you know, it's not, it's it's not a big deal. None of that's a big deal. I think back in that time, 1990s, we didn't have video conferencing. We had email. <laughs> that was about it.
2: Masha'Allah, there's a lot of for Singaporeans it. to learn, you know, like we have to learn to, you know, be more accepting and as much as it's like we want to be involved in our family's business, at the same time, we shouldn't come with a free right or free pass to judge people and to be oppressive, you know, so alhamdulillah for that sharing, inshallah, we can all learn from this and whoever's listening to this, you know, can can perhaps impart such values to our family as well, inshallah. And make yeah, all, I, suppose families,
1: I, yeah. I suppose we need to be more like the Australians, eh?
2: Inshallah, inshallah. We all learn from each other. <laughs> inshallah. So on that note, bro, uh Pat Saleh, I just wanted to ask, because Alhamdulillah, you didn't have the standard um biggest challenge of dealing with family opposition opposition. What were the other challenges you had, be it external or internal, when it comes when it came to you know uh, converting into a into Islam and then becoming a Muslim? Be it before you converted, during the conversion or after the conversion? What were the challenges, the primary challenges that you faced?
1: Well, uh, I suppose it was the change of identity. Um, so, you know, before becoming a Muslim, then I'd be down in the pub drinking with my friends. I was actually a world champion beer drinker. And um, the uh, the thing is that that all of a sudden, you can't do that anymore, right? So your friends are saying, where, where have you gone? Um, so that that affects you a bit, Um, your dress, right? So it took a while before I had the courage to, you know, go out into the world dressed like a Muslim, like with the Baju Malayu and the Songkot on my head. And and I, you know, it's very easy for me to do that now. But back then in my thirties, I'm 60 now. It was in my thirties then. It was sort of um, a bit strange to suddenly change into a different form of dressing. Um, and to have the courage to go out dressed such a way. Because even you go out dressed as a Muslim, you are doing dawah, because you're saying, um, particularly if you're a foreigner, and you're obviously a foreigner, right? Um, when you go out into the community, whether it be to the shopping centres or, or to wherever like that, and you've got a song card on your head and you're wearing, you know, perhaps uh, the long sleeve baju malaya, uh, then people will look at it and, it'll, and it will make them think, well, you know, why is this guy Muslim? And it's a, and that's all it is. It's nothing more than just a prod. Why is this guy Muslim? Make you think about why is he a Muslim? Why would somebody who, who is obviously from a Western country suddenly turn up dressed like a Malay? And I think that's an important point is to wear the to wear the Muslim attire proudly um, out, in the, out in the world, because it is da'wah. That so that's that's my view And, and it took a bit, it took a bit of you know personal. Um, effort to bring myself to the point that I could do that confidently, because I've been doing it for so many years now. Just people are used to seeing me dressed, my friends and whatever. They're used to seeing me dressed as a Muslim, so you know it's just it becomes normal after a while. So that's what you call masuk Malayu right? So you masuk Malayu is is like um, you adopt the the traditions and the ways of and the Malays. I can't speak Malay very well, unfortunately, but um, certainly I, I I tick the two boxes where I adopt the ways of the Muslims, the ways of the Malays. And I am a Muslim um, and I try to speak Malay, Malay as best as I can, but I fail most of the time. So I, tell, I told the mufti, the previous mufti once, that I was Masak Malayu. <laughs> he thought it was funny.
0: MashaAllah, it's hilarious. Um, it's so amazing they made the mufti, though. It's, it's really what an honour, know MashaAllah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. That being said, I think uh, you mentioned the struggles of like changing identities, right? I think this is something that definitely a lot of converts um, have to go through. So given your experiences, you know, as a 20-year-old Muslim, right? Subhanallah, um, so for those converts right now, also to be Muslims, inshallah, who are struggling with letting go of these, um, uh, with the way of life that they are used to, do you have any advice for them?
1: Um, you You have to go slowly at it um if you have difficulty giving up the drink well try to reduce and reduce um don't kill yourself with a sudden change that's my advice we don't expect you oh there's muslims out there with tattoos right there's guys out there with tattoos you can't untattoo yourself it doesn't mean you you're not a good muslim because you've converted and, and, and some people do look down on guys with you know tattoos or girls with tattoos but the thing is that what happened before you were a muslim and what happens after you're a muslim are two completely different things if, if you made some mistakes in your life beforehand for different things, and just using a tattoo as an example, right, but it doesn't matter. Once you become a Muslim, okay, you've got a tattoo, you converted to Islam, alhamdulillah. But the thing is that don't pressure yourself to the point that you make your life difficult, because Islam wasn't meant to be difficult. That's the important point I think I wanted to make. The other advice I can give is that look for friends who are Muslims. So if you don't have many friends who are Muslims, but you convert it to Islam, it's sort of, you don't have to throw your old friends, but you do need to find some friends who are Muslims. And you can find them in the mosque or you can find them at Dar camp So those are the things that um, that you can do. But I had this great experience where I, I you know, my mosque is Masjid Ahmad Ibrahim. And um, I went there and I, because my work was nearby and I went there for Zohar and things like that. And then one of the one of the staff there, his name is Haji, Lattif, Haji Abdul Latif. He sort of came and... Um, befriended me and brought me into, you know, Quran reading and stuff like that. And and that was a, a great experience in the mosque, a really great experience inside the masjid. So there's a great, don't be afraid to go to the masjid and don't be afraid. I suppose I'm giving advice to new converts. Don't be afraid to go to the masjid and don't be afraid to make friends with people in the masjid. So that's the, the I suppose there's a bit of advice there for for new Muslims.
2: Anyway, uh, Pak Saleh, I just wanted to ask this very burning question. I have no hearing your story um, so you said like do it gradually slowly does it you know when you know that this is the truth and then you you can slowly give up on your own life but you were a world-class drinker you said and it's, yeah. you had like a brother as a priest you i mean definitely your family opposition wasn't much of a factor alhamdulillah but your own life was so different it wasn't like you were already eating you were already not eating pork like you already had an allergy to pork it wasn't like that so what made you, you know, through it all still give up on this entire identity that you built for yourself, knowing that you won't will no longer be the same person? Like what exactly was it that, you know, told you that no matter what, I am going to convert. I'm not going to let anything stop me. I'm going to change. If I have to change, I'm just gonna do it. Like what what was it? What was it about Islam? Well, no, other
1: that than didn't the other. that didn't play that didn't play much into the decision to convert, right? So so you convert and, you know, you do some courses and things and you get a little bit of knowledge and you sort of play on that. Um, but it's as you go along, you're, if you make the effort and you are required to make the effort under Islam to increase your knowledge and you do so, you have to be, you know, it's very important to find a, a good teacher, right? Because in my case, I had I've been blessed with being associated with Al-Mahum uh, Ustaz Zulkifli bin Haji Ismail. And um so you can also find good teachers inside Darul Aqam, uh, properly, properly organized. But these days you get a good teacher and then you'll you'll get good advice and you'll get good knowledge. And then you'll realize, right, at that point that you gotta pull your finger out and do something about change, changing your life, right? Changing Definitely,
2: you know. but I think a lot of non-Muslims who are actually interested in Islam, they get a bit put off when they hear that, oh, I have to cut this out of my life, I have to change this part of myself. So all this, it's definitely very normal to be, to be like, okay, there's too much, I'm not going to find out more because it's too scary, and then they just want yeah. to stop. So what was it that made you still go on, still proceed? Because I think that would be quite inspirational for converts to be, inshallah.
1: I thought it was intellectually interesting uh, because I have an interest in history and things like that. You know, For example, before I, I spoke to you about... Um, atheism and science, right? And why are they at loggerheads? And um, it's because I'm always interested in that sort of thing. So it's my personal, I suppose it's my personal thing to always investigate things. If you, I've got a bookshelf out here in the lounge room that my wife complains about all the time. And um, it is full of books on, written by atheists. And um, it's full of books that are associated with the very subject. And, you know, I really went into that subject deeply. And I came to the conclusion that, there was no conflict between science and and religion, and Islam in particular. So I think that I had this, um, I suppose I had this natural ability to be um, educational, right? and so I gave myself an education, and um, and a, yeah, well the thing is that the in Islam you're expected. So this is why I fit into Islam but personally. I fit into Islam very easily because I'm naturally inquisitive on scientific matters and also historical matters and things like that. So so I naturally got into the into the into the knowledge building phase, which we are required to do as Muslims. And from there, that's what that's what informed me or what that's what guided me um, to you know zone off on the drinking. But you can't no, don't take 10 years to do it. <laughs>
2: Yeah. alhamdulillah i'm so glad that but, you know your 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 natural self although from the outside it doesn't look like you fit into islam well because you know you were doing some sort of practices which aren't allowed in islam but actually internally you are already a good muslim because you love knowledge and you always like to pursue knowledge so alhamdulillah i think that's really beautiful how you said you fit into islam very well like personally yeah. alhamdulillah. But, i think on but, that no- uh, okay yeah. please yeah.
1: sorry just one more comment it's just you know because this podcast might. My- be going to people who are thinking about becoming a Muslim. It's really not that hard. And um, you can you don't have to one day be um, a non-Muslim and the next day suddenly, you know, Pako Tudong, Pako Song. You don't have to be like that. Even praying five times a day doesn't come to you straight away, you know. Um, it all comes to you. Don't worry. Let Allah guide you and it will happen. Um, you don't you don't have to make it, you don't have to, you know, like dread the switch, the switch over doesn't happen overnight. So if you're inclined towards Islam, welcome, come along. And we'll work with you to help you make the transitions needed in, you know, in your activities, your identity, all these sort of things. It's really no, it's really not that difficult. Don't worry about it.
0: Inshallah, pasal. I think that was a, uh, that's a very beneficial advice. I think sometimes like converts feel the pressure, like soon to be converts, they feel the pressure, like well, I need to be a perfect Muslim, like before I can take the shahada and all that. But uh, you're right, just just join us first, and you know, inshallah, we will help you. Um, Allah will help you as well. Um, yeah, I think people always feel that burden. Um on that note, right, Pastor Saleh, I think uh, you mentioned a bit about science and like uh, logical reasoning. So, um, with some of the converts that I've met, I think it's really fascinating how they um, adopted this similar like scientific reasoning or like logical mindset coming to Islam. I think we always hear stories of how like um, when they first picked up the Quran, they had a lot of questions, right? And then they read the Quran, Subhanallah, and then suddenly all the questions that they had, or like we even had stories of converts who wanted to find mistakes in the Quran. And after that, like, got all their questions answered after they read the Quran. So this uh, perspective of, like, scientific reasoning or, like, logical reasoning, I think it's something that always goes, that is co- that commonly runs through the mind of converts or potential converts before they take the shahada. So I just wanted to ask, like, from your perspective and your scientific background, right, um, what are some tangible points of reconciliation between, like, Islam and science, which, you know, hopefully would be beneficial to someone who is seeking those answers as well, And he's listening right now.
1: Oh, okay. Well, um, the Quran is not a scientific document. Okay, that's the first thing. There's a lot of nonsense out there. If you go and Google and you look for all of these um, things on the internet, you're going to encounter a lot of rubbish. Um, The first thing to do is not to go looking there. (laughs) Because there's all these different... You know, different groups, right? There's there's the, 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 the atheist groups pushing their point of view, and you've got the Christian groups pushing their point. Of view. You've got even uninformed Muslims pushing a different point of view. And um and so um you gotta be very careful of where you get your knowledge from. That's the first thing I'll say is don't believe anything you get off the internet in terms of this discussion between atheism and science. Do not believe anything you read there. Um it's it's just too dangerous. Um, there is some good stuff there, but it's swamped out by all the nonsense. So avoid that. But I think that um, I think that the, the most important thing is to understand the sources of the misinformation, okay, and they are historical in nature, not really scientific in nature. Right? So the, I described earlier in, in, during this podcast, you know, how did you get to the point of science being in opposition to, you know, uh, belief in God? And it it wasn't a scientific issue; it was a political issue. It was a misguidance issue. It was a historical issue. It wasn't a scientific issue. So, I, I don't go around um, look, looking for things like proof of wormholes and you know all this other stuff in the Quran. I don't go looking for that in there at all. The Quran is a guide to how we should live our lives. The thing is that we we shouldn't get too bogged down in science because science is only about the measurement of things that are in this world. The science. Is restricted to what's in this world. The science is not able to measure whether there is a god or no god. As a matter of fact, science can neither prove nor deny that God exists. The existence of God is is in your brain, and um, and if you look and correctly interpret the things that you see, then you'll realize that that there is one God. It's it's there to be seen, and these are the signs. You only have to walk around in the forest or in a natural environment, and for me, that's that's one of the things that that makes it very solid. Allah is showing us that that He is an incredible creator. Right. And, and we need to be able to see that. So that's the thing is that the the science is is one thing and the belief is belief is the most important thing and it's there to the observer. Use your noggin, right? Use your outlook. use your noggin. So that's what I that's all I'd say is but science is an important source of knowledge. But it's not the only source of knowledge, and most of the atheists out there will, te- will tell you that science is the only reliable source of knowledge, and it's not. Ah, uh, that's all I want to say on that at the moment.
2: Alhamdulillah, thank you so much, Pak Saleh, for that wonderful sharing. I think the part where you were talking about why do we need so many species of trees, like why do we need so many species of native flora, native fauna, like why, right? Because, like what you said, these are the signs, which actually is a uh, Pun with the word signs, you know, signs, signs. So it's like these are the signs that Allah purposely placed in this world because even in the Quran, there's so many times He talked about, look at my creation, reflect on these creations, and then you will know that there is a God, right? Like I'm putting this very loosely, but let me just like, uh, re- uh what's it called? Reference back to a verse that I have with me here. So there's one verse in uh, Surah Ali Imran, uh verse number 190. Indeed, in the creations of the heavens and the earth and the alternation of the night and day are signs for those of understanding. MashaAllah. So I think this is really amazing that you brought it up already. And it's really true that we just have to go outside and look at the things around us which are occurring naturally. And Kao actually, I've very, very, uh, been very excited to come and talk to you because I'm also a bit in the nature industry in my work. So when I uh, you know heard that we are interviewing you today, I was actually very excited trying to keep like, you know, keep my calm. And I just want to also get into more of that. And inshallah, this will be our final few questions before wrapping up. It's talking about your work. Um, how do you link Islam to your nature conservation work and whether it complements or opposes your circular life? Inshallah. Yeah.
1: Well, I don't have a secular life, but um, the thing is that um, everything you, you do as a as a Muslim is is not secular. Definitely not. It's definitely not secular because it's all based on belief in God, right? Based on the understanding that there's one God. But um, yeah, so come to what I do. Well, for many years I was working in the software and development industry in uh, satellite image processing. So yeah, you know, I mean. I'm into maths and I'm into science. You know, that is heavy maths and science. And I'm quite, I'd say I'm quite accomplished in that area. And um, then, um, due to economic downturn, our office was closed in Singapore, our development office was closed. And also, parts of our Indian operations were closed. And it was goodbye to Mr. Tony, it was goodbye to my colleagues. Um, we all just got said goodbye. Thanks for all the fish job's finished. And so we out and I'm sitting back thinking what I'm going to do. So, you know, you get a bit of a payout when you get retrenched. So sitting there, had a bit of time to sit back and think. And then while I was sitting there wondering what I was going to do, I got this phone call from somebody that said, oh, can you come and do a flora survey for us? Because for the last 20 years I've been here, I've been also studying the flora of Singapore. Right. So I got some expertise in that area um, that I didn't realise was going to be something that kept the lights on at home and uh so i went and i did this job and then i i just got word of mouth referrals for other projects so i've been out doing um flora mainly flora surveys that means you go into an area that's going to be developed um wrapped by hdb or jtc and you document the plants trees shrubs epiphytes climates and stuff that you find in there and um Sometimes you you have interesting experiences when you do this because when I, on two occasions I've come across Muslim graves where nobody knew there were Muslim graves. So I was one. This is about two years ago. I was working at a place called um, uh, near Slater West Westlink. There's a PUB facility there, and behind that is you know, forest. It used to be a place called Kampung Penkelan Petai, and it had its own graveyard, allocated graveyard, and that graveyard had been you know, the the Myot in there had been exhumed at the time that the people were moved out to HDB, which is about the 1980s. But what they didn't realise is that there was overspill from that graveyard. There, there were graves that were beyond the boundaries of the graveyard and they were not exhumed. And I was walking through there um, and there had been a fire in that area. So all of the undergrowth had been burnt away and it was just dirt. And I actually saw the grave, the headstones there. But if there had not been a fire there, I would not have found those graves. I found 16, 16 Batu, and um, I reported it to NEA and um, BCA, who were the developer of the area. And then later on, when the project started to get it developed, they they took care to clear the baluka away very carefully, and they found 40 graves there. And so part of this part of this work that I do, um, I, I managed to just be a small player in the proper recovery of those Muslim graves. And um, I had a similar experience in, out in the Western catchment too, but I won't waste time talking about that. But The thing is that, that sometimes I feel that, that, that you know, you, things happen that are meant to happen beyond your knowledge and beyond your control, and you have to be prepared to take the responsibility to act on the things that are revealed to you. Right? So that's important. But um, in terms of the, the work environment, we've got responsibility to who? The other people that live here. We've got responsibility to the people who will come after us. How, what will they eat? Will they have air to breathe? What about water? Will they have water to breathe? So we have to be just to the atmosphere. We have to be just to the, to the, to the water, to the resources, because Allah put enough resources on this earth for everybody who's ever going to live on it. That's what he said. Everything is supplied for view. But the problem is that we've, we've, we've messed it up a bit. You know, we have this capitalist system where more resources are sitting with the elite and at the expense of the general population. And So these are some of the injustices we have to work towards. But certainly, how do we look after the earth? Should we just anyhow clear land and build, or should we be thinking carefully about how we build and to reduce the amount of damage we do? We, Remove forest, right and when we, when we remove forest, remove the, the ability to create oxygen to convert to take carbon dioxide out of the air. The more forest we clear, the less opportunity there is for converting the atmosphere back to oxygen. and that plays out as a matter of justice towards the people who come after us. So when right so what are they going to breathe? If we clear all the forest today, then our grandchildren are not going to have any air to breathe. They're going to be breathing carbon dioxide. They won't do very well breathing carbon dioxide. It's no good for you. Um, So so that's why we have to think about the environment. And so as a result of that, I get involved in, not just because I work in the industry, environmental industry, but I also um, work in conservation activism. So I get involved in engagements with government agencies, particularly the development agencies like JTC and HDB, BCA, uh, these guys pub and and we get we get to try and influence them to try and minimize the amount of damage they do so some of the things that we try to do are make sure that we have some refugia somewhere for animals to move to once you clear the rest of the project and also make sure you have connectivity so so the animals can escape from there to another place Um, and we have two places they can escape to one is the central nature reserve and the other one is the western catchment these are the two main gene pools that we have for fauna and flora. And so long as you don't cut them off, so that they're still connected in some way with uh, for nat- nat- natural forested land, then you, then you have less impact on the animals. You don't kill as many, you don't lot as many will lose their life. You won't end up with a situation where you have isolated communities where they become inbred communities, which are susceptible to local extinction. So we, we push for connectivity and we push for refugia. And um, that's how we balance. That's how we try and balance things out in Singapore. What you have to do is work with the people who are doing the development, and guide them and influence them to the point where they 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 at least give some mitigations towards the natural environment to, to the creation to the to the creation of our law. So that's 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 how we think. And then of course, Islam Islam fits right into that, right? So because we are promoting justice to creation. Um, we are trying to take care of the earth, right? Because we're the Khalifa. And uh, we're trying to give justice to the generations that come after us. So, that, you know, at least they have some air to breathe and some water to drink. And uh, so that's how in some small way, we, we try to to, to to do the right thing.
0: Yes, thank you so much, Pak for this very wonderful sharing. Um, um So we're going to share our takeaways from this session. I think, mashallah, this was such a beneficial and impactful sharing for us. And um, my, my favourite takeaway really is uh, when you mentioned... Um, you know the need to reflect in nature and that allowing us to witness Allah's beauty and to attest to the fact that um you know there is a creator. Uh, one of Allah's names is um al-Musawir and if I remember correctly it means the one who fashions everything to perfection. So um you know sometimes we really take everything for granted. Uh, we take we take for granted how perfectly in symphony and like um like, really how perfect the world has been created, you know, from the rising and setting of the sun to, like, the exact distance of the moon to the earth. Please correct me if this is wrong, but, like, the exact distance from the moon to the earth that has allowed us to function um the way we are. And even down to, like, I recently attended a class and Ustazah was saying, like, even down to the creation of your thumbs. Like, you don't have to look so far, just look at your hands, right? And your thumbs are created short. And there's a reason for that. Like, it's so you can pick up things. So, like, subhanAllah, like, um I think it doesn't take much for us to like you say you just have to go take a walk um in the forest and you will see that there's so much beauty in what allah has created and that should um reaffirm our faith inshallah um, sorry and another another takeaway that i really like uh which you shared was you know to have realistic expectations of so converts out there who are listening also to be converts uh, to have realistic expectations of your journeys and to not expect to be perfectly practicing and this also goes to like born muslims who are also seeking or like uh refinding uh rediscovering their journeys with allah right because it really is a constant journey between you and allah um and like for me it really comforts me to know that um, Allah knows me and Allah loves me, and whatever struggles that I have, He knows. So it's okay, I'm not answerable to anyone else. Um, I also wanted to jump in here and just um say a small note of encouragement to our dear listeners who are listening right now. Like whatever messages that reach you today, they are directly from Allah. And honestly, the three of us were just vessels for his words and guidance to reach you. So uh this really makes you so special, mashallah. And I hope that it eases your hearts if you're um still seeking and it comforts you to realise that truly you're not alone uh, because Allah is really responding to you right now.
1: <laughs> alhamdulillah. Yes,
0: alhamdulillah.
2: Alhamdulillah. And with that, let me also share my takeaways, inshallah. Uh, thanks to Srinid. That was really beautiful. I think like it's true, it's true that we are truly just vessels, you know, to like um, just pass on his message and whatever guidance that is received inshallah through this uh, episode or any other episodes or anything that uh, you listeners are listening to it's truly from him so don't think of it as a coincidence don't think of it as like wow lucky yeah it's not like that it's, it's alhamdulillah all praise to him right he's the one who is trying to reach you and that is a beautiful thing really and I think on uh, what sis Dini was talking about like her number one takeaway being that we should actually reflect more like what Pastor was sharing how we just need to take a walk right there's another beautiful verse in the Quran that I wanted to share on this note uh, which is actually from Surah Al Mulk uh, verse 19 and it says, uh, "Have you? Have they not looked to the birds above them, spreading their wings, and at times they fold them in? No one holds them up except the Rahman, Al Rahman, the Merciful Allah. And surely He is watchful of everything." So I think this verse really encompasses how we just need to, you know, change our perspective. Instead of looking straight, just look up, look at the birds. I mean, we we always take everything so for granted, so easily, but. Masha'Allah, it's Allah who is making the birds fly. It's just beautiful. I I just wanted to share that. So and uh, also let me just move on to my biggest takeaway from Park Saleh's sharing. I mean, Par Saleh, you shared so many amazing things and uh, honestly, I think I need to go back and like, you know, process everything that you shared because there's really so much that uh, we can learn from and we can put into practice, inshallah. <laughs> and I think like the one thing that I found very impactful for me was actually your whole your whole sharing about climate change. I think that was the most impactful climate change sharing I've ever had. So I'm in the industry, like I said, but I definitely, I wouldn't say I'm the number one poster person to like, you know, stop using plastic straw and then like reduce, reuse, recycle. I'm not the number one person to do that. But I think you just convinced me today to like, you know, be a bit more uh, careful with our environment. Look, and we have to be just because we are a Muslim, because I never really put that side by side and and thought of it that way. So I I think I was very inspired by what you shared about how if we are Muslims, by default, we should also take care of the environment. And because you shared that, I also feel a bit more motivated in my job now because I was always thinking, how do I connect my job to Islam? And like you said, there is no secular life. You know, our life in itself should revolve around Allah. Every aspect of life, including our jobs that we spend so many hours in the day, including your studies, dear listeners, if you are anyone, if anyone of you is a student, every part of your life, if you do it with ihsan, which is what you are supposed to work towards as a Muslim, it is to do, you are doing it for Allah. So you don't have to think of it as separate, which Pak Saleh actually shared very beautifully earlier on. And I think uh, there was actually a last question but Pak Saleh already answered it, which is, does his work actually help him to increase himself in iman or does Islam actually help you to increase yourself in excellence in your work? And I think you shared so beautifully that there is, it is like, you know, it's joined together and, and they both help each other, make you a better worker, a better Muslim. And mashallah, I think that's the perspective that we should all try taking in our lives, inshallah. Yeah, and
1: really with the, I, yes, Yeah. You mentioned up, Ar-Rahman, up. right? You mentioned Ar-Rahman. What is the fifth ayat in Ar-Rahman? It's about Mizan. Mm-hmm. And Mizan is balance, right? So, Allah created the earth in perfect balance. And then we came along and screwed it up. <laughs> um, and he created perfect balance. You know, in, in, in my lifetime, I've been in a lot of remote areas, particularly in Australia. And it's quite awe-inspiring to just be in a remote area. And you just feel like, you know, you've been helicoptered in. There's no influence of man anywhere here. And you're just looking at this is exactly how God created everything. And um, that's the beauty of the wilderness, until man comes along. And what do we do? We change things. We put buildings up. We knock forests down. We dig holes. We fill things up. Uh, we, we, we make land where there's water. And all sorts of nasty things that we do. We're actually being unjust to creation. So the perfect balance, the perfect mizan, which is the Arabic word for balance, is already there, fundamental in the earth. And we are here. Our responsibility is to be just to that creation. but. In the process of our imperfection, we break that balance, and um, so that's the challenge that we have. Yeah, and anyway, yeah, that's all I want to say. We're burning up the time here. So. <laughs> Over to I you guys. The, I, think, I won't yeah, say anymore. Yeah, thanks so much for
2: sharing. <laughs> no worries, We can go on all day, yeah, and it's yeah. really I think we can like just just keep getting beautiful nuggets of knowledge in every second of your sharing, Alhamdulillah. And I think with that, yes, you have uh, really summed it up so beautifully. So we've come to the end of this episode. Alhamdulillah. We hope that anyone listening, everybody listening took away at least one piece of knowledge that you can, you know, apply in your life actively. And inshallah, you are also as inspired as us uh, two hosts, Dini and I to, you know, be a better and more just human being in this vast earth, inshallah. inshallah. And with that, let's end with Tasbih uh, kafara and Surah Al-Asr.
0: Subhanallahum wa bihamdika, shahadu ala ilaha ilaha anta astafruka wa atubu ilaik. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim wa al-asruhinna al-insana lafaykhus illa al amanu wa aminu salihati wa tawassaw bil wa tawassaw bil sabra. Amin al-murruna. amin Very
1: nice. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much. Assalamualaikum. Waalaikum. Juwah, you're welcome. Waalaikumsalam warahmatullahi <laughs> wabarakatuh. Thank, thank you so much Pak Saleh.
1: You're welcome bye-bye.
0: Oh, well, thank you. Thank Bye. you. Have a good night. Have a good Bye. weekend. Assalamualaikum.